We have a mate. Yeah, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to see you all. Uh, you'll need your Bibles open to Mark chapter 3 uh, because we're having a look at that passage, but, but there's going to be a part in the sermon where actually we're going to look at some other parts in the Gospel of Mark. But um, So make sure you have your Bibles open. I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father God, it is our desire this morning that we would hear from you. This week we've been hearing many competing messages that have, that has vied for the, the supremacy of our hearts and minds. And Lord, today we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we've got many reasons to ignore what is going to be said to say, uh, today. But they're all the wrong reasons. We've got many reasons to, to, to have hard hearts. But we pray that you would give us soft hearts. You would take those reasons for not listening away. And that we would truly hear what you're saying to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to show you a uh, photo that's going to come up on the screen um, of my, uh, the two most important women in my life. This is uh, my wife, Kate, and my daughter, Emma. This is from a few years ago when, when Emma was about five years old. And I put this, up, this photo up because it reminds me of around this time, uh, we went to Emma's first wedding. She was one of about 20 flower children, and so she came down the front. But just before the service, we were sitting down in a pew, and she saw in, this, in the kind of same row but over the aisle a girl around her age. And so she got down from her pew. She went over to this girl right in front of her and said, Hello, my name's Emma. What's your name? And this girl said, nothing. So Emma took a step forward and said, hello, my name's Emma, what's your name? And by this time, the the little girl's parents are saying, you should say hello, but the little girl is kind of stepping back. And then Emma, because she's like a dad, I guess, she took another step forward and was right there and she goes, hello, my name's Emma, What's your name? By this time, the kid's freaking out. I had to go and say this kid from my own child, right? And it was interesting because it was almost like she Emma was saying to, to this little girl, I'm here. You, you've got to acknowledge that I exist. You've got to respond to me. Yeah, it was right up in this girl's face. Now, today we're looking at Jesus, and Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, is saying to us, you've got to respond to me. And as he does this, I think one of the things that a lot of us think is we can just have Jesus off to one side of our lives. That we can have Jesus just, um, we know he's there, intellectually we know he's there, but we haven't made a response to him. And yet Jesus can't just be a person we think is Mildly interesting. Jesus can't just be another great teacher. He won't allow us to do that. He says, this is who I think I am. You have got to respond. 
And so I want to ask you straight up off the bat, and I'm going to ask this at the end, how you responded to Jesus. Now, I, I dare say some of us at this point go, well, I'm a Christian. I responded rightly. I put my faith and trust in Jesus, and I hope that is true. But here's my fear. My fear is if you're in that category where you've gone, I'm a Christian, I've responded in faith and repentance to Jesus, you, you may be thinking, well, hence, I'm glad you're preaching this sermon because there's actually other people in this church that really need to hear it. And can I just say I'm terrified of that response because that actually shows you that you're hard-hearted towards God's word. You're saying, actually, I don't think this sermon is relevant to me. But here's the thing. I think you can be part of church. You can even be a Christian at one point in your life and still be coming to church and slowly drift away. Slowly choose against Jesus. I remember being at Bible college with a, with, with a guy and, and the first couple of weeks at Bible college, he was absolutely on fire. I was only in Bible college then for a year. He went on to do fourth year. He topped more college, which, you know, you got really, really smart people at more college, right? And yet, within a couple of years, he's now an avowed atheist. What happened? Slowly but surely, he was convinced that the Word of God is not relevant for him. He responded to Jesus. And so let's not do that this morning. Let's come before what Jesus is going to say to us and ask the question, how have we responded to Jesus? To ask that question for us again. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that we can respond to Jesus in three ways. Three responses to Jesus. We can first be hostile to Jesus. We can be outright hostile to Jesus. Secondly, we can use Jesus. And thirdly, we can follow Jesus. We can be hostile to Jesus, we can use Jesus, and we can follow Jesus. So let's have a look at the first point. We can be hostile to Jesus. And I wonder if you saw that in our passage as we looked at it. You, you actually see this all the way through. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Have a look at the hostility here. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. Notice they're looking to trap Jesus. They set up this trap which shows you their intent, shows you how they've already responded to Jesus. Now, they're seeing if Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. You're not meant to work on the Sabbath. Jesus is going to work and heal on the Sabbath. And so what does Jesus say? Verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And what Jesus is saying here is, what am I meant to do here? Am I meant to help this guy? Am I meant to save his life? Or am, I, or am I meant to do something else? But there's actually something more. He's saying, I think he's actually also saying, I'm going to save this guy's life on, a, on one level. I'm going to give him the life that, that, you know, he doesn't have. And yet, you are looking for ways to kill me. So, so he tell, tells this man to, to stretch out the, his hand. 
And his hand was completely restored. And how do the Pharisees respond? Do they go, wow, that is amazing. No, verse 6, have a look at it with me. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, now you're probably going, well, who are the Herodians? The Herodians were a bunch of guys that have actually taken over Israel. The Pharisees generally hated the guts, and yet they are conspiring together. It's, you know, kind of a dumb analogy, but but it's a bit like, imagine someone who's on the right wing of politics went to the Greens and said, hey, let's conspire together to kill this dude. That's the kind of thing that's happening here. Two disparate groups are coming together for the one aim, to get rid of Jesus, to kill him. Can you see the hostility here? But but there's actually more, uh, more. Have a look at verse 20 with me. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family... Now, you think your family is going to be loving and supportive of you. Have a look, his family. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. His family is looking at him, hearing all all the things that he's doing... Hearing his teaching, and what do they say? He's a nutter, he's crazy, he should be locked up. That's what they're saying. Once again, you can see the hostility. And then in verse 22, it goes on. And the teacher of the law who came down from Jerusalem, he said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Notice. Notice once again, if we have a look back in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is in Galilee, which is in the north of Israel. These guys have traveled from Jerusalem to check Jesus out, to see if he's legit. But more than that, to trap him. And notice they've come with a message. The message is not, hey, I want to check Jesus out, I want to hear him out. No, they have previously concluded that the reason Jesus is able to do all these things is because he's possessed by Satan. He's just nuts, he's crazy, he's evil. He's so crazy and evil that he's obviously possessed by Satan. And so Jesus tells a story, I won't read it, or, or like a kind of parable. Verses 23 to 28. And he basically says that, you know, think Satan wouldn't use someone to drive out demons. That would just be illogical. And then he says some really sobering words. Have a look at verse 28. Truly truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, or sorry, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? I, I, I remember hearing when I was younger from a particular pastor that um, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit means to say that um, basically you're saying that the Holy Spirit can't do something. Can I just say I don't think that's right at all? The only only thing that is unforgivable is for you to reject Jesus. So I take this verse as blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is to have your heart so hard that the Holy Spirit can't do anything in your heart. 
that, that, that you are so opposed to God and the Holy Spirit that you won't be changed. You don't want to be changed. You have a hatred for God and for Jesus. All the way through Mark's gospel, in fact, all four gospels, what you see is hostility to Jesus. And I would go as far as to say hatred of Jesus. And what's really interesting today is I actually think when we reject Jesus, when we reject God, it's not because of intellectual ideas. It's not because we've come up with a bunch of problems and solutions, you know, that kind of thing, and we have found no answer to them. What I've noticed is that there's a deep, seething hatred towards God, towards Jesus. I remember uh, in my first year at my previous church, Resolve, we put on this, um, this uh, movie at Dendy Cinemas in Newtown, and it was a debate between Christopher Hitchens, or a series of debates kind of put in this documentary between Christopher Hitchens and a pastor, Doug Wilson. And what was really interesting, what was great, is there was a bunch of people who didn't know Jesus who came. In fact, the, the Sydney Atheist Society advertised it, and they came en masse, which we loved. There were 300 people watching this movie, and afterwards we went to the pub and we talked, right? And what was interesting was, I was talking to one particular atheist lady, and her, her boyfriend was there too. And, and the, the tone of the conversation started nice, and then it became mocking one way, them to me, and then it became angry. And she said at one point, like, what, how stupid are you to believe this? I'm, I'm, I'm just, I can't believe it. And she was obviously angry. At one point, you know, when someone gets really angry, a fleck of spit flies out and she hit me there and all that kind of stuff, right? And then there was a guy there who's a friend of mine who's a stand-up comedian, and he just came and said, why are you so angry about someone who doesn't exist? And she stopped. And he said, look, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I walk down King Street and I look at the people that are doing tarot cards. I don't think it's real, but I'm like, oh, tarot cards, I can't believe it, Right. Or I don't look at, you know, people who practice Scientology and I go, oh, come on, you know. But you're angry about something that doesn't exist. Why? And that's when they left. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And when he said, when he wrote his, his biography, Surprised by Joy, about him becoming a Christian, here's how he said what he talked about, about being an atheist. I was at this time living like so many atheists or anti-theists in a world of contradictions. I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing. I was equally angry with him for creating a world. Do you see the contradiction here? Anger for a person that doesn't exist. I think deep down we know that, that there is a God. 
And when we read, read the Gospels, deep down we know that this is true. But the anger and the hostility comes out because Jesus makes claims of our lives that we don't want. Jesus says all the way through the Gospels, I am the God and the King of the universe and I set the agenda, not you. And we don't want that. The Pharisees were in power. They didn't want some upstart from Galilee saying, no, you're wrong. Do it like this because in a sense they would lose their power. But we don't want Jesus to come into our lives and say, hey, you're wrong, do it like this. Because we want to be right and we want to be the king of our, of our universe. We want to be the king of everything. I remember in year 12, I, I made an electric guitar. And I had a great time doing it. I had a teacher, he's a great design technology teacher, called Mr. Brain, Shane Brain, which, great name. And, uh, and I can remember at one point, I was uh, looking, designing this guitar, and he said, I think you're doing it wrong. He's the guy who's never actually played guitar, never read a book about guitars. I knew it all. And he said, I think you're wrong. And what do you think I felt at that moment? Do you think I went, oh, thank you, enlightened teacher, for telling me that I'm wrong and I've got to do it your way? No, internally I was seething. And five minutes later I was embarrassed because I checked it out and he was right. We don't like to be told that we're wrong and do it my way, but that's exactly what Jesus says. And so how are you responding to Jesus? You see, when Jesus says, I am the king of your life, here's your big choice. It's a choice that a lot of people made in the first century. You can either crown him as king or crucify him as an imposter. You either want to crown him as king or crucify him as an imposter. What you cannot say, and please, you cannot say this, is that he's very interesting. Because if you're just saying he's very interesting, you don't get him. You don't get the threat to your own sovereignty that Jesus is. You can either crown him as your king or crucify him as an imposter. What you can't say is, man, he's an interesting, great teacher. How do you respond to Jesus? But then there's a second way we can respond to Jesus. We can use Jesus. That is, we can come to Jesus for just the things that we want. We're not really bowing the knee. We just come to Jesus for what we want. And you see this in the crowds. Have a look. Have a look with me at verses 7 to 11. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Ejumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. So basically, everyone from everywhere is coming to Jesus. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. 
but he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. You've got floods and floods and floods of people coming to Jesus. But did you notice what was absent in these verses? Did you notice how there's no professions of faith here? And you see this throughout Mark's gospel. Flip back just, uh, just a, few, a few pages to Mark chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. Mark chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Once again, a flood of people have come to Jesus, that's a great phrase for a vision for a church, isn't it? But do you notice what is not happening? There's not faith here. In fact, you can read through passage after passage in Mark's gospel when, when there is a crowd, they can be amazed at Jesus, but they don't bow the knee. And in fact, if you read chapter 15, it is the crowd that is screaming out, crucify him. Now, you've got to be, let, let's be clear. The crowd that is in chapter 1 is different from the crowd that is pro- probably different from the crowd in chapter 3 that is very different from the crowd in Jerusalem in chapter 15. But what Mark is doing is grouping these people together because of their response. He's not trying to say all the crowds are exactly the same people. He goes, no, everyone in the crowd had exactly the same response. They wanted Jesus to heal them. They wanted Jesus to do great things for them. And they are, they are amazed. But once again, being amazed is not a sufficient response to the king of the universe. They are amazed at Jesus, but being amazed at the king of the universe is not a sufficient response. See, it's a bit like this. In 1990, Haley Lewis was 15 years old. She won five gold medals at the Auckland Commonwealth Games. Who remembers this and was blown away? This is one of my first memories, right? 15 years old, only five years older than me at the time, and won five gold medals. She had the opportunity uh, to meet with the Queen. The Queen came over to New Zealand because of the Commonwealth Games, and Haley Lewis and a bunch of other people who had won a bunch of gold medals uh, met with her. She was one of, I think, 15 or 20 people. Afterwards, the, the press came out to her. She's 15 years old. And, and the, the first question was, so what did you think of the Queen? And she said, her first words, she's a bit posh. Right? Now, 15 years old, right? That's probably what most of us would have thought or said, you know, you've got all these cameras before, before you. But I can still remember responses. I still can remember how people thought, man, this is rude. I remember my grandmother just saying, she got invited to meet the queen. You don't call the queen posh. It's the wrong response. And here the crowds are responding wrongly to Jesus. They are coming to him to have their needs met, 
but they are not bowing the knee to Jesus. Why do you come to church? Why do you come to Jesus? I think we come to church, we come to Jesus for a myriad of reasons. Some of us come to church because we love the community. We've got friends here and we love hanging out with the people here. Some of us love to sing or love just being part of church. We love it every week. Some of us have come to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is that little bit extra in our lives, that little bit of spirituality that we need. Some of us have come to Jesus that we want our sins to be forgiven and we want to go to heaven when we die. But you know, all those things are good in and of themselves. But they're not enough. So it's a bit like being amazed by Jesus but not bowing the knee. We can be part of a church and yet uh, not bow the knee to Jesus. We can come to Jesus and say, I want your sins forgiven, but guess what? I'm going to live however I want. And I wonder if that is you. We come to Jesus not just because he's our saviour, but because he's the king of the universe whom we bow down to. We come to Jesus, not to, or we come to church not just because we're, we're part of this church, we like the people, but because we're bowing the knee to Jesus. Jesus can't be just your saviour or the person that makes you feel a little bit better, the person that gives you hope. He has got to be your king and your Lord also. Are you using Jesus just to get what you want without bowing the knee to Jesus? How do, you, how do you know if you're doing that? I think, I think it's when you read the Gospels, you see what Jesus wants from you. And you've got to ask the question, are you doing that? Jesus' ethical teaching is summed up in two, two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. How are you going at loving your neighbor as yourself? How are you going loving the people at church as yourself. I think one of the things that we want, especially in the West, is we want everything to be comfortable. We want a comfortable experience. We want a comfortable life. We especially want to be comfortable at church. And so that com- what that comfort breeds is complacency. Or this idea that I can see needs, but because I don't want to do it, I won't jump in. What's been interesting over the last two years since we've been coming back from COVID, we've asked so many people to say, hey, can you jump in? We really need you here. And and the response has been, sorry, I don't want to do it. Now, I want to make a distinction between someone saying, I don't want to do it, and someone saying, I can't do it. There have been people over the last six months, last year, that said, look, I'm just full up, right? You know, I'm a young mum or a young dad or, or, or whatever. I, I just can't put any more on my plate. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is us having the time that we can, can uh, serve in a certain way. But it really, I just don't want to do it. I, I, I could help out with kids' church. I just don't like kids. I could lead this ministry, but man, I'd just really take up my time of of doing whatever I want to do. Are you loving your neighbour as yourself? 
Or is the disease of me really present here? See, when, when I think, man, I just don't want to do this, and, and that happens to, to all of us, right? If, if that is you, that, that's happened to me a lot. I remember, I remember the, this lady who was uh, at a church I visited. I forget her name. She taught Sunday school for 60 years. 60 years. I was blown away. I, I said, I said why do you do that? Do you love kids? She goes, no, I don't. I said, well, why do you do it? You don't like kids. And she said, because they needed me to do it. 60 years ago, and I started. And then the next year, they needed me and I could do it, so I just kept doing it. And she goes, there was, some, there was a bunch of times I didn't really enjoy it, but I kept doing it because I needed to love the people here and love the kids. How do you know if you are truly following Jesus, you put others before yourself? How do you know if you are truly a church member, you put the church before yourself? How are you going there? Are you coming to Jesus just to get what you want? Are you coming to church just to get what you want or what you need? Or are you really bowing down and worshipping Jesus? Or are you part of the crowd? You're amazed at Jesus, but no more. And let's have a look at the last point. We can follow Jesus. This is the last response. We can follow Jesus. First of all, we see uh, the the disciples following Jesus in verse 13 to 19 as they are sent out to preach the gospel. And that is one way, uh, one very clear way of following Jesus. But there's actually, I think, a more pointed way that I want to highlight. And the reason why I want to highlight this is because we bang on a lot about telling people about Jesus. But there's also another way in this passage, and we bang on about it because it's really important. I hope you are doing it. But have a look at verse 31 to 35. This is ridiculously countercultural that I think us in the West don't really get. Have a look at verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told Jesus, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Now, I don't really come from a traditional family. My, my, my family is quite Western. Um, but I think if my mum rocked up to my place and I had a bunch of people out there and someone said to me, hey, Hans, your mum's outside. And I was like, who's my mum? My mum would be extremely frustrated. She would have words. She would say something like, Hans, even though you're 42, I can still give you a flogging. She'd be so angry. And some of you guys are coming, come from more traditional cultures where it is so important to honor your parents, especially your mom. And Jesus came from that culture. This is like slapping his mother in the face. But he makes a point, verse 34. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. See what Jesus is saying here. 
to follow him, to be part of his family, is to do God's will. It's not just to say you hang out with him or you find him interesting or you're a member of a church or whatever it is. It is that your life has radically been transformed by him so that you do God's will. Jesus is saying very clearly that unless you have a life that has been transformed so that you do God's will, you are not his follower. Isn't that confronting? Isn't that confronting? See, Jesus is saying how you live actually shows what you believe. See, it's a bit like this. This is the best analogy I can come up with. I grew up in Moree, and one of the sad things about Moree is that there was a lot of guys in Moree who would become biological fathers but have nothing to do with their kids. They would be on the left, they would be out uh, having parties, you know, going to the pub, all this kind of stuff, and would have nothing to do with their kids, not even talk to them. And yet they would call themselves fathers and dads. And then there was a bunch of guys who are more like the guys on the left here. They were fathers who gave up their lives for their kids. They would love their kids. They would serve their kids. I remember one guy found out after raising one of, his, one of the kids, he found out that it wasn't even biologically his. That there was another guy who was really the biological father. And yet a bunch of his friends actually said, mate, you're the real father because you've shown it by your actions. And Jesus is saying, a real follower of me would show it in their actions, would show it by the way they live. So you can do all things that make it look like you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but if you, aren't, if you don't have a transformed life, Jesus is saying you're not part of his family. But, but some of us are going, you, aren't you saved by grace through faith? Aren't you saved by what Jesus has done on the cross and therefore trusting him? That's how you're saved. Absolutely, 100%. That is how you're saved. But there's a famous quote. That should be coming up, I think. Is it coming up? I think this is broken. Or have I gone right back to the start? Or I didn't make it in there. Let me read it out to you. This is from Martin Luther. He says this in his Galatians commentary. He says this, Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Your actions, the way you live, are evidence that you are saved. Can we see that? Can Jesus see that evidence? What does your life show? Does it show that you are following Jesus? Are you making every effort to reconcile 
with people? Are you making every effort to love and care for people, to mend relationships? Are you making every effort to live with humility, to understand people better than yourself? Are you doing those things? See, I, I think the thing is, we go... I'm living for Jesus because, oh, you know, I, I'm faithful to my wife. I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that. And we, we pick out big things. And I'm glad that is evidence in your life. But what Jesus also says is, you will show your love for me by the way you love other people. By the way, as I said, You work hard at your relationships to reconcile. You forgive. Paul says Christians should be marked by encouragement of others. So much so that I think if you don't speak encouraging words, I don't think you're a Christian. Because if the Holy Spirit is working in you, and the word is working in you, you will do what the word says. So how are you going at following Jesus? Has he so transformed your life that your life is different? See, there there are three ways you could follow, you can respond to Jesus. You can be hostile to Jesus, and I pray that no one here is hostile to Jesus. You can just use Jesus for what you want out of him. And if, you, if you're in any of those two, if you're hostile to Jesus or just using Jesus, you are in very, very big danger. Or you can, because of what Jesus has done, because of, of the fact that he has died for you and he rose again, giving you forgiveness of sins and hope, you can follow him. How are you responding to Jesus today? Let's pray. Father God, our world is is pushing us to respond to Jesus in, in ways that aren't right. Just to ignore him, to come to him for, for just what we want to use him, I guess. To, to, to be hostile to him. Lord, I pray that none of us here would do those do those things to respond to Jesus in that way, but that we would respond to you in faith. Lord, this has been a challenging sermon. That, that, that God in your word, it seems like chapter 3 is really pointing out the areas of my life and the areas of our lives which don't measure up. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't go away from here and just forget about what has been said, what we've looked at today. But the areas that have hurt the most, would we work on the most? The areas that the Holy Spirit have said, hey, this has got to change. Lord, may we not make pathetic excuses. Oh, well, that's just the way I am or whatever. But may we hear the word of God. And may we change so that we would follow Jesus because of what he's done. May our lives reflect that we follow our great Saviour, who is also our King. Amen.